Hey, I've got some exciting news for you. For nearly a decade, the Social Media Marketing Society has been helping marketers like you to keep up with the changing times. This is our private community just for marketers, and the doors are open right now. When you join, you get access to ongoing training and become part of a welcoming community of marketers who are just like you. Learn more at smmarketingsociety.com. Again, smmarketingsociety.com. Welcome to the Social Media Marketing Podcast, helping you navigate the social media jungle. And now, here is your host, Michael Stelzner. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you so much for joining me for the Social Media Marketing Podcast, brought to you by socialmediaexaminer.com. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner, and this is the podcast for marketers and business owners who want to know what works with social media. Today, we've got an awesome show lined up for you. But before we get started, I want to play a little video for you that I think you'll find super valuable. Are you struggling to convey your message? Wish you could describe what you do in mere seconds? In today's video, I'm going to share three power techniques that will allow you to refine your message so you can connect with your ideal audience. Check it out. Albert Einstein said, if you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it well enough. So why is message refinement so important? It's a noisy world out there and you've got to stand out. You want to be remembered. (laughs) The truth is you don't have a lot of time and neither do the people that you want to connect with. A few choice words will absolutely speak volumes. The key to everything is to translate the language and the words that you use and you think about every day into language and words that others can understand. For example, here at Social Media Examiner, rather than say we have a blog, a podcast, and a YouTube channel, we say we're a media company when we describe ourselves to others. Rather than saying social media marketing, we say we help businesses grow their business online. So your goal is to come up with a list of those phrases and translate those into words that anyone, anywhere can understand. All right. Maybe that's a little bit too heavy. (laughs) Depends on how many takes. the purpose of the free weights. Who knows that? I haven't figured it out yet. (laughs) Let's use the we help blank to do blank method. For example, we help marketers. Maybe you help moms. Maybe you help plumbers. Fill in that first blank with a generic word that describes whoever it is that you help. And then what do you help them do? Think about the desired outcome. What do they seek? What do they want? What do they aspire to? What do they most want in their business or in their life? That's what you should say you help them do. For example, we could say we help marketers do Facebook. That's pretty vague. Instead, we say we help marketers become the hero of their company. Maybe you help moms get more sleep at night. Maybe you help plumbers get more business opportunities. So one thing you can do is when you say we help them do X, 
you can ask why. Ask the why question so that they can achieve blink. And then ask the why question until you hit on just the right desired outcome. So again, when you use the we help blink to do blink method, your goal is to simplify in the least amount of words who you help and what you help them achieve. The third thing is magical. It's the use of metaphors. At Social Media Examiner, we call ourselves the trail guides in the social media jungle. Here's the jungle right here. This is the jungle. Just act like this is the jungle, everyone. Oh, I can't get through there. Ow, that's not working. It's so corny, don't use that. We help marketers navigate the constantly ever-changing world of social media. Did you draw a picture in your head? Are you thinking of navigating crazy terrain? Well, guess what? That's the power of metaphors. We're the social media trail guides. We can conjure a picture inside of your mind that can convey so much more than just those few words. Remember, the biggest room in your house is the room for improvement. It's hard to say things in just a few words, but if you can get it right, it can accomplish amazing things for you and your business. All right, well, so you're probably wondering why in the world are you playing these videos instead of just talking to us, Mike? Well, I'll be honest with you, I listen to these videos without looking at them and I'm like, wow, the message is still relevant and the music is good and I think I should play these videos on the podcast because I think you all will find value in it. All right, now back to the podcast. Today, I'll be joined by Jonah Berger and we're gonna talk about how to persuade and we're gonna zoom in on the science that you as a marketer need to know. And by the way, if you wanna reach me, you can tag me on Instagram, I'm Stelzner, or you can email podcast at socialmediaexaminer.com. And one last thing, if you're new to this podcast, hit that subscribe button so you do not miss a future episode. I was recently at Social Media Marketing World and I had a chance to connect with some of our best customers. A lot of them listen to our podcast, just like you do. Not everyone knows what I'm about to share with you. We do something special here at Social Media Examiner. The best of the best of the guests that you hear on the Social Media Marketing Podcast not only teach at our conference, but they're also part of our secret society called the Social Media Marketing Society. Each month, our top-tier guests who have been on my show are invited to train inside our society for an exclusive group of marketers who are just like you. The training is designed to help you go from being a passive consumer of content to a marketer who is in active learning mode. So if you're ready to make real progress with your marketing, you're a perfect fit for the Social Media Marketing Society. Join us by visiting smmarketingsociety.com. We've got a really big sale that is ending very soon, so don't delay. Again, visit smmarketingsociety.com and join today. Let's now transition over to this week's interview with Jonah Berger. Helping you to simplify your social safari. Here is this week's expert guide. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Jonah Berger. If you don't know who Jonah is, he's a marketing professor at the Wharton School and author of the books Contagious and Invisible Influence. He's also a keynote speaker and marketing consultant. His newest book is The Catalyst, How to Change Anyone's Mind. Jonah, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me back. 
So today, Jonah and I are going to explore how to be more persuasive in our marketing. Last time you were on the show, Jonah, it was back when you wrote Contagious. And I'm just curious what's happened since that book came out, because I think that was quite a few years ago, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, how times change. Uh, so yeah, wrote, wrote Contagious in 2013, all about word of mouth, uh, why products, ideas, and behaviors catch on. And that book really allowed me to learn a lot uh, about a bunch of different industries. Uh, I got a chance to you know speak to and consult for everyone from big Fortune 500 companies, so you know the Googles and the Apples and the Nikes of the world, uh, to saw small startups, um, industries I knew something about, like consumer packaged goods, to industries I knew less about, like like B2B and dry cleaning and you know everything in between. And so I, I really got to see a lot about how marketers and leaders uh, work today. Um, and one thing I noticed is a similar problem came up again and again, which is everybody had something uh, that they wanted to change. Uh, whether you're in sales and marketing and you want to change a customer or a client's mind, whether you want to change your boss's mind or a colleague's mind at the office. If you're a leader, you want to change an entire organization. But it seemed like there were a lot of people that wanted to change something. Something. And as I looked at the literature and I looked at books and looked at research, there seemed to be a sort of a gap or a, a sort of a block in terms of what people were doing and what was actually working. Well, let's talk a little bit because when you say looked at the literature, help our marketing audience kind of understand what goes into creating a book in your case and what it means to look at the literature because obviously there's that's language I understand, but not everybody does. Oh, sure. Yeah. So uh, in my day job, I'm a marketing professor at the Wharton School. Uh, and so I spend uh, some of my time consulting and speaking, but a lot of my time doing academic research. And so, um, you know, as clients said, hey, you know, we're launching a new product. How do we change the customer's mind? Or, hey, we're launching a new service and people aren't buying it. What should we do? Mm -hmm. I, I went back to look at sort of the academic research that had been done in this space, both the influence space and the change space, um, and tried to see what was working and, and what wasn't. And, and what I noticed is that most approaches people were taking were some version of, of what I'll call pushing. So we even did some work on, on our end, for example, where we asked hundreds of people to write down what's something you want to change, whether it's the customer's mind, your boss's mind, whatever it might be, um, and what have you tried to do to, to change it. And um, in over 98% of the time, uh, people wrote down some version of pushing. Uh, give them more information, add more facts, follow up with them over email, make another presentation, just try to show them why why I'm right and they need to come around uh, to the right side. And, and it's clear, by the way, why we think that's a good idea. So if you think to sort of our notions of influence, they come a lot from physics, right? If we're sitting in our office or we're sitting somewhere at home and there's a chair and we want to move the chair, we tend to push it. Right? <laughs> pushing the chair works. You want it to push it to the other side of your office. You put your hand on one side, you push it in that direction, and it goes. And so for physical objects, pushing is a great idea. But whether it's the boss, whether it's a client, whether it's a customer, unfortunately, those things aren't objects. Uh, and when we push them, uh, something interesting tends to happen uh, that your listeners are probably well familiar with, which is when we push people, they don't just go along, they push back. Mm. Um, and so the question is, if pushing doesn't work, could there be a better or a, or a different way? Fascinating. So is that kind of the hypothesis behind the book? It is, yeah. And so the, the simple idea of the book is, look, we, we do a lot of pushing. Uh, it tends not to work. Could there be a, a different approach? And this approach actually comes from a completely different domain, and, and that is chemistry. Uh, obviously, change in chemistry is hard. Um, uh, if you think about sort of you know plant matter turning into diamonds or uh, carbon turning into something else, it takes thousands of years for change to occur. So chemists often add a substance that makes change happen faster and easier. Um, but what's most interesting about these substances is how they make change happen. They don't increase 
the temperature. They don't increase the pressure. They don't push harder. What they do is lower the barrier to change. They make the same amount of change happen, not by pushing, but by reducing barriers, making it easier for change to occur. And these substances very simply are called catalysts. Um, and catalysts have won multiple Nobel Prizes in chemistry. They've uh, done everything from, you know, we use them today in our contact lenses to how we clean our cars. Um, but they're also a really important approach in the social world, right? Stepping back for a second and not adding more forces to push people in one direction, not saying, well, what could I do to get someone to change? But saying, well, why haven't they changed already? What's preventing them? What things are stopping them from changing? What obstacles are in the way? And how can I mitigate them? I think a, a good analogy can be made to a car. So if you think about a car, let's say you know, you're parked on a hill, you come back to your car, you unlock the door, you sit in the driver's seat. We want a car to go. We often stick our, our key in the ignition, we turn the ignition, we put our seatbelt on, and we stick our foot on the gas. If the car doesn't go, we just think we need more gas. Same thing as in, as in the social world. Someone doesn't change, we just think we need to push more. Sometimes we don't need to push more. Sometimes we don't need more gas. Sometimes we just need to depress the parking brake. Mm. And so that's what this book, this approach is all about, right? Saying, hey, what are those barriers? What are those obstacles? What are those parking brakes? How can we find them? And how can we mitigate them? I love it. I've often used the phrase reducing friction, right? Because the job of the marketer is to try to get someone to take an action. And there's a lot of friction points that exist, just like there is with that break, right? And if you can let go of that break, <laughs> then it's going to move forward, which is kind of cool. So is it safe to say that the word persuasion is at play here? Like, is this a book about persuasion? <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, I thought about this the most uh, when I asked Bob Cialdini to read to read the book. So, uh, Bob Cialdini is obviously one of the most famous uh, yeah, researchers influence. and people around. As we think about persuasion and influence, he's the guy every everybody thinks about. Um, and even has a more recent book called Persuasion, which yes. is uh, all about thinking about what happens before persuasion. Um, and, and I think I would argue that this is in some ways the same as persuasion, but in some ways different. Um, and, and the way it's the same is that, yes, if we're thinking about persuasion as we're trying to get people to do something, then yes, this is persuasion, right? We're trying to get somebody to do something. We're trying to get the client to buy the product. We're trying to change consumer behavior. We're trying to get our boss to come around. We're trying to change industry. So we are trying to change someone or something and get them to do something. Where I think it's a little different is if you look at many of the things that Cialdini and others talk about when they think about persuasion, it's really about adding something often, not always, but often about adding something like social rather than, than, yeah. than removing something, right? right? And so uh, those tactics are useful sometimes, but may not always be useful. And these ta other tactics, the ones I talk about in the book, I think are, are related, but in some ways can be more useful. Excellent. And for the listeners, uh, I have had Robert Cialdini on the show to talk about persuasion. Fascinating. If you go back into the archives and take a listen to that, it's, a, it's an interesting, totally interesting uh, philosophy. So I think my next question is, what's wrong with the way marketers and business folks tend to try to persuade people today? I'm going to use that word because it sounds better than catalyst them. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. And I think I think it's fair. And I think, yeah. um, uh, I think it's a good word and it's a useful right. word. Right. You know, I think there's a big trend in marketing today to be customer centric. Think more about the customer. Think more about what the customer needs. Uh, you know, at Wharton, I teach the introduction of marketing class to our incoming MBAs, so that sort of core marketing course. We talk a lot about don't be product focused, be customer focused. Start with the customer. Start with them. But as we think about either in sales or in marketing, 
what we often do, we often end up trying to push what we have rather than being customer focused, right? Rather than trying to make what we can sell, we often try to sell what we can make, right? Think about what we already have and how we sell it. And so Mm -hmm. I often think persuasion tends to be a, this is what we're doing. You should do it rather than thinking about, hey, why aren't you doing what I want you to do? And how can we get you to do it, right? How can I show you that actually what I want you to do is very much in line with what you already want? How can I kind of help you get where you want to go by following what what I'm interested in? I think it's an important way to think about things, but a different way to think about things. You know, if we think about the metaphor of the customer journey, right, you know, to really make that work, we have to understand where someone is in their journey. Someone might not be aware that a product exists. Someone might be aware that it exists, but they um, might not think it works for them. Someone might be, okay, I think it works for them, but I don't understand how it works. Someone might think it works, but they think it's too expensive. Someone else might think it's not too expensive, but they're worried it's not going to integrate with what they're doing already. And so there are various steps or stages or gates in that customer journey that if we don't know where someone is, it's going to be really hard to get them to change. I think uh, a good analogy is to think about a doctor. If you go into the doctor's office, for example, the doctor doesn't just say, okay, well, uh, here's a splint for your finger, right? The doctor first says, okay, what's the problem? Right. What is what is the thing you need? Now let me figure out what the solution is. And so I think the same thing is as marketers or as salespeople, we tend to think a lot about us. We tend to think about why a product or service is good. We think if we list those reasons or even the benefits for the consumer, they'll change. We think a lot less about what those needs are, why they haven't purchased something or done something already, and how we can mitigate those obstacles. I'm old enough to remember the pre-internet days and when you would walk into a store and try to buy something complicated like a refrigerator or a car, they would ask you lots of questions and they would try to understand where you're coming from. And that was very normal, like in the 80s and the early 90s. But now so much business is done online. Do you think that the next generation of marketers is skipping all these questions because it's not efficient and it's not easy to do? They're sacrificing scale for knowledge. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think some of it is technology. I think some of it is also just plain egocentrism. And that's something we're all guilty of, right? We know a lot about our product or service. We know why we think it's great. We have a series of talking points or attributes or things to mention. And we think if we just mention them enough, someone will come around. Mm. Um, But if we don't understand what those barriers are, and and we'll get to some of them in a second, if we don't understand what those barriers are, it's going to be really hard to, to change someone. So Yes, part of it's technology, but I think it's too easy to blame technology. I think we also need to blame ourselves and and really trying to understand where someone is. Okay, well, let's get into your framework. Uh, We're not going to talk about the entire thing, but let's like at a macro level understand because you've figured out a way to help, if you will, get this catalyst thing going. So what do you call your framework and tell us a little bit about it? Yeah. So as I looked across both the academic literature and I interviewed people from, you know, superstar salespeople to marketers launching new products to people trying to build businesses, I noticed the same things coming up uh, again and again. There seem to be sort of what I'll call five key barriers, five key obstacles that people often encounter, whether you're trying to change a customer's mind, a client's mind, your boss's mind, even in your personal lives. Uh, we'll talk about some of these. You know, I think people talk about them whether they're changing their child's lives. I, I talk to uh, hostage negotiators and I talk to substance abuse counselors to get a sense of change even in those really unusual but important conditions. And so again and again, I saw these same five barriers. And so they're reactance, endowment, distance, 
uncertainty, and corroborating evidence. And if you put those five together, they actually spell an acronym. It's R-E-D-U-C-E, or REDUCE, uh, which is exactly what good catalysts do, right? Good catalysts, they don't push harder. They don't uh, try to pressure people. They reduce the barriers to change. They figure out what those obstacles are that are preventing change from happening and and how to mitigate them. And so the book, very simply, there's a chapter on each of these barriers. It talks a, a little bit about the science, why these barriers occur, and then provides some both case studies as well as examples of companies, organizations, individuals that have solved these barriers, mitigated them by using a variety of strategies. So let's just simply define each one of these like in a quick sentence so people can visualize what they mean, and then we'll dig in on just a couple of them. What does endowment mean? Yeah. So uh, endowment, uh, the simple idea there is we tend oh, no, to be I'm sorry. attached. I'm sorry. I guess I skipped one, right? Reactance is the first one. Sorry. <laughs> okay. yeah. uh, reactance is uh, a little bit of what we alluded to before, but basically when we, we push people, they push back. Ah, uh, got people it. want a sense of freedom or control. When you, when you usurp that, they push back. Right. Okay, good. And then endowment? That's the idea that we're attached to stuff we're already doing. So the status quo bias, the endowment effect, we tend to be emotionally attached to things we're doing already and we're unwilling to let them go. Got it. So from that perspective, that means we're not looking at the other person's perspective. We're too stuck on ourselves. Is that what I'm hearing you say with that? And, you know, when we're a marketer, if we're trying to get someone to buy something new, if they already have something they've been buying, whether we're trying to get to switch switch the brand of clothing they buy, the brand of car they buy, the brand of software they use, they already have something they're attached to. And so we're not just having to get them to do something. We're having to get them to let go of something else, which is ah, often quite challenging. Got it. Okay. Reactance, endowment, and then distance. What's that one? Yeah. Distance is all about how far away an ask or information is for where people are already. So people tend to have a sort of existing perspective or view. If what we're talking about is too far away from where they are at the moment, they tend to discount or ignore what we're saying. Like, for example, I'm not in the market for a new car, right? For a couple of years, right? Something, Or my kid's not going to go off to college for a few years, something along those lines. Yeah, or even, you know, take politics, for example. You know, if I'm a Democrat and someone else is a Republican or vice versa, um, even if they're just sharing information, I don't even listen because it's so far away from my existing perspective. I don't even want to consider it. Got it. I think I understand uncertainty, but let's give it a simple definition. I know we're going to get deeper into that one, but tell me more. Yeah, sure. Uncertainty is is less about the past and more about the future. New things always involve some sense of uncertainty. A new product or service might be better. I don't know if it's going to be better. Uh, And so that uncertainty often prevents action. And then the last one was evidence, right? Corroborating evidence, yes. And and that's a simple idea that some things need more proof, right? So for uh, small decisions, weak attitudes, things that people don't have a strong attachment to, they only need a little bit of proof to make a decision. But for bigger decisions, things that are more expensive, more controversial, there's more uncertainty. Sometimes we need more proof or more evidence. And so it's really about how do we involve others in that process so that people hear from multiple angles to change their mind. Okay, so that's all five of them, right? Or all four or however many that is, right? That's everything. That's all five. Yes. Okay, perfect. So let's dig in on a couple of these that you think marketers might find super fascinating. Probably the reactance one is where we should start, right? So let's talk a little bit more about that. Dig a little deeper. Tell me more. Yeah. So very simple idea of reactance. When we're trying to change someone's mind, we're trying to get them to do something. We're trying to get them to buy a product, use a service, uh, change the thing that they're doing. We pitch them in some way, shape, or form. But people don't like being pitched. They don't like being persuaded. They like to feel that they're in control over their own lives. They make their own choices. They are driving their own destiny. A good way to think about it is people like being in the driver's seat, right? Mm-hmm. We like to uh, have restaurants that have more choices. We like to have things that have more choices. We like to feel like we are driving what we're doing. And so the challenge is whenever we ask someone to do something, 
we're impinging uh, on that ability to choose. Rather than feeling like they are making their own choice, now they're worried like we are influencing their choice. And because of that, they get disinterested in making that choice, even if it was something they might have wanted to do already. So think about in a car buying context, for example. Um, maybe I was already interested in buying an electric vehicle. I was interested in it. I heard about it. Sounds interesting to me. But if I feel like the reason I'm interested is because someone's trying to sell me on one, now I'm worried, hey, that decision's not driven by me. It's driven by that person, that salesperson is trying to get me to buy an electric vehicle. And so I'm going to react against that message. I'm going to push back and be less likely to do it. And in some sense, people have almost an anti-persuasion radar. So think about like an anti-missile defense system that shoots down incoming projectiles. <laughs> I love right? that. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We have the same thing that happens when someone tries to persuade us. Right. So we walk into that car dealership, we get a phone call, we get an email that comes in, we're in a meeting and someone pitches us something. Whenever that happens, that radar goes off. It's, it's red alert and we take a series of countermeasures to shoot down those incoming persuasive attempts. What do we do? Well, sometimes we ignore the message. Right? So if the ad comes on the television, we walk out of the room or change the channel. The email comes in, we delete it. Right? We avoid or ignore the information. You know, maybe we stay in the room, but we do something else. But I think even worse for marketers is counter-arguing. And that's a case where someone might listen to your phone call. They don't hang up. They sit there listening. But rather than just listening, they're not just sitting there thinking about all the reasons that you're right. They're sitting there thinking about all the reasons that you're wrong. So if you're pitching them something, for example, they hear an ad that says, hey, you know, uh, the Ford F-150 has best-in-class towing, right? I'm not just sitting there going, okay, I bet that's right. Ford 150 has best-in-class towing. I'm sitting there going, well, of course Ford would say that, right? Chevy wouldn't say that the Ford F-150 has the best-in-class towing, but Ford would say that. Best-in-class, what does that mean? Does that include all pickup trucks or only one pickup truck, right? <laughs> right? Are they ignoring the other features like gas mileage or price or things that they're worse on and only focusing on the attributes that they're good at? It's almost like a high school debate, right? Rather than just sitting there and listening, that consumer, that customer is listing reasons in their mind why everything you're suggesting is wrong. And obviously, that makes it really hard to get them to change, right? Because rather than just sitting there and going along, they're making your message, your persuasive attempt crumble to the ground. They're not just not listening. They're thinking about why it's wrong. Okay. So what in the world do we do to avoid this reactance problem? Yeah. So there's a few ways to deal with it. And one of the most interesting ones, I think, that probably many of your listeners have experienced in one way or another uh, is to do what I'll call providing uh, a menu. Um, and it, it goes something along the lines of this. So you know, usually when we pitch a product or a service, uh, we're asking people to do something in particular. Buy this software. Use this no, new consumer packaged good. Check out this new type of service. We're asking them to do one thing in particular. And as we talked about, people spend that pitch or that ad or whatever they're listening to counter-arguing. Think about all the reasons that it's wrong. Uh, if we think about it in our personal life, same thing, right? You have a spouse or a friend. They ask you what you want to do this weekend. You say, oh, let's go see a movie. They often don't just say yes. They say, oh, but it's supposed to be so nice this weekend. Why don't we do something else? Or, oh, yeah, but but this other thing would be more fun, right? They they think about all the reasons why you're suggesting uh, what you're suggesting is wrong. Well, I deal with this with dinner. If we want to go out for dinner, like nobody can come to an agreement in my family. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Right. Often when we suggest one thing, pizza, no. Chinese food, no. So that's yeah. one thing everyone thinks about the reasons that it's bad. So instead of suggesting one thing, and this is a subtle shift, but an important one, give people multiple options. 
Instead of one thing, give them two. Instead of, hey, we could go watch a movie, it's, hey, we could go watch a movie or go out for Chinese food. Instead of, hey, buy this product, it's, hey, you might want to check out this one or this other one. Um, instead of, you know, one service, you might want to check out this or something else. What that does, very interestingly, is it shifts the mindset of someone that's listening. Rather than thinking about all the reasons why what you're talking about is wrong, it puts them in a different role. Now, instead of thinking about what's wrong with that one thing, they're thinking about which of those two things they like better. Like now, that. they might not love either of them, right? But they're at least focused on which one they like better, which is going to make them more likely to choose one at the end of that experience. Because rather than thinking about all the things that are wrong, they're focused on the things that are right. And I call this providing a menu again because it's not giving people 60 options. It's not giving people 17 choices. It's about giving them two or three, maybe even four choices. Consultants often do this when they present to clients. They say, look, I'll give them three options about the course of action. If I give them one, they say it's too expensive or it won't work. If I give them two or three, right, they'll think about which one they like best. And so when you walk into a restaurant, they don't give you any option that you want on the menu. You go to a Chinese restaurant, can't have Italian food, you can't have Japanese food. It's just Chinese food. It's just a set of options within Chinese, but they don't give you one option. They give you multiple. Same thing with kids. You know, sometimes I tell people how to say, oh, that works with my kids, right? You know, you tell your kid, put on their pants. No. Put on your shirt. No. But instead you say, which do you want to put on first, your pants or your shirt? Now they're much more likely to listen to you because they've had a volitional choice, a volitional autonomy in that process. They're much more bought in. And so they're going to buy into the outcome as well. I think we do this, but I'm going to ask you anyways. We have a conference called Social Media Marketing World, and we give people the choice to buy a physical ticket or a virtual ticket. And there's a couple of variations on the physical ticket, but the virtual ticket is for the people that can't travel. And the physical ticket is far more expensive, and it's for the people who who are able to travel. Is that, and we put it like in a table up on the you know checkout page, is that kind of what you're talking about or is that something totally different? I think it's it's certainly a little bit like what we're talking about, right? Because notice what I'm doing is I'm thinking about those two options. You were talking, I was saying, huh, okay, well, this one's maybe too expensive for me, but this other one I get to be there in person. Right. And so I'm like, which one of those do I like better? Rather than think about a third option, which is don't go at all. Right. Right? Don't don't do either one. And by the way, that's always an option on the table. Right. But now, even by chance, by the way, by introducing two options, now that third option is less likely just by chance. But it's also less likely because you've involved the individual's opinion. I think, um, you know, even in social media, we see this a lot. If you look at the posts that get the most engagement, it's not me saying, hey, I like this or this is what I think. It's me saying, hey, what's your opinion? Right? Which of these things do you like best? I actually did this uh, not on purpose, but by sort of happenstance, I was picking covers for the book, right? The new book, the, this book, The Catalyst. And I was like, God, the publisher was telling me they liked one and I wasn't sure. And I was like, why don't I just ask some people? I'd never gotten as much engagement in a social media post as I did when I post the covers of the book, multiple covers, which one do you like best? Everyone shared their opinion, right? People love sharing their opinion. And by giving people a choice, by providing a menu, that's what you're doing. You're allowing them to share their opinion, which people love doing, and they're going to be much more likely to make a choice at the end of that experience. Do you find that this concept we're talking about is most effective when it's human to human live interaction versus written marketing kind of stuff, right? Because obviously I'm sure a lot of marketers right now are thinking, well, I'm only selling like one product at a time. So how do I do this? Right. Versus like, if you're on the phone with someone, you could say, Hey, you could talk this out obviously. Right. If you're on the phone, like, but it might not be as easy to do in writing. I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah. So this is a, a great conversation, something I hadn't thought a lot about before, but I really like the way you phrased it. 
think for a moment even about what you did with your two types of tickets. Right. right? In a sense, there's only one product. Now, they're, they're versions of that product. Right. But in that sense, they're versions of every product. Right. If I'm selling a gym, yes, I only have one product, the gym, but I can offer people a year subscription or a monthly subscription. There you go. Um, you know, if I'm offering people popcorn, I can sell it in multiple sizes. Whatever you're selling, there are ways to make multiple versions of it. Um, and I think, you know, sometimes people say, oh, well, I'm only selling one version at the moment. Maybe you create a phantom version that isn't even a version that you think consumers will want. By offering it, one, you give them a sense of choice, which should help them be more likely to choose one. Right. But second, if a whole bunch of people choose the one that you didn't think they want, you should probably make that version of what you're offering because they like it better. Right? Maybe it's even a segment of people that likes one versus the other. But it's really – it's about combating reactants by giving people this opportunity to choose, to participate. And the reason why this is so important is because it puts the power back in the control of the recipient right, or the person yes. who is – who is essentially trying to make the decision. So instead of saying, hey, buy this product, and I can see with remarketing campaigns on Facebook, you know, I could see showing, like if someone abandoned your sales page, I could see you popping up a Facebook ad that says, by the way, did you know that there's more than one option here, right? Here's option A, here's option B. For example, like, you know, even if you're a consultant, I would imagine you could do group consulting versus one-on-one consulting. And you could, maybe that's not, I don't know, I'm just, ideating with you now, but almost anything, you can create a premium version of it, or you can create a discounted version of it, right? And that's where I think you can introduce choice. Yeah. As you said, it's adding an aspect of choice to that process, right? right. The more you give choice to them, rather than usurping that sense of choice, the more freedom and autonomy they have, the less reactance they have, and the more likely they'll be to move forward. And in the book, I talk about three other ways to deal with reactance. We don't have time to go yep. into all of them here. That's just, there's just one. But I think the idea very simply is giving people more choice, right? So another, we won't talk about it at length, but another strategy is to ask rather than tell, Right? So rather than telling people why they should do something, ask them a question. And Love ask it. them a question will, again, make them feel like they're participating. They're more committed to the conclusion. They're more likely to go on along. Another way is to highlight a gap. You know, Rather than telling them to do something, point out a gap between what they're saying they care about and what they're actually doing and encourage them to resolve that gap. And so there are many different ways to combat reactants. But the main idea, as you said, is, is to allow people to participate in the decision-making process. Awesome. Let's talk about uncertainty. I think this is a big problem. <laughs> Obviously, we're all very, uns it's like making decisions today seems to be harder than ever. And maybe sometimes it's because there's too many choices. I'm curious what your thoughts are about the uncertainty. Yeah. Side. So uncertainty is actually my favorite chapter of this book. And it, it's the reason I started writing this book in the first place. So I, you know, I did Contagious. I've consulted with all sorts of companies and organizations. When I did consulting projects, I would always talk about ideas that eventually became this chapter. And everyone was like, oh, which chapter is that in Contagious? I was like, it's not in Contagious. They're like, where is it? I'm like, like, I'm getting there. I haven't gotten there yet. And so the, the way to start explaining uncertainty, I think the simple way to start, um, is anytime you ask someone to do something new, they're what are called switching costs, right? Uh, whether money, time, effort, whatever it might be, costs of doing something new. So I buy a new phone, that costs money, and it also costs time. I have to figure out which one to buy. I have to get the new things switched over. It costs money and time. I buy a new software package, it costs money, and I have to integrate it with my existing systems. Um, it takes effort. I have to figure out how to use uh, a new car or a new system. And not only do these costs occur, but the costs tend to occur now and the benefits tend to occur later. Right? So when you ask someone to buy a new phone, yes, it might be better for them. 
right? Yes, they might enjoy using it more. Yes, it has more space. But until they pay you for that new phone and they deal with all the, the switching costs, they're not going to get that benefit, right? Same thing with a new car, same with a new process. Anything you do, the costs are often now and the benefits are often later. And as we think about it, right, nobody wants to deal with something like that, right? Everyone wants the benefits now and the costs later. And so we're skiing uphill already, right? We've got an issue where we're trying to get people to overcome costs now for benefits later. But it gets even worse because new things always have some element of uncertainty, right? What you're doing now, whether you like it or not, you are certain about it, right? People was talking to someone uh, who was talking about this in the case of internet service providers, and they were calling it like the old boyfriend problem, right? Where you have an existing service provider. You may not love them, but you know exactly what they are, whereas the new thing, you're uncertain. It could be better, but it could be a lot worse, right? And so that's often a challenge. Hey, you say, marketer, your new product or service is better, but how do I know that it's better? I'm uncertain about whether it's actually going to be better. And notice, I have to pay the costs to resolve that uncertainty. Yeah, just okay. as a quick aside, I've had direct TV for a long time and it was the beginning of the new year and I saw a little ad on YouTube TV that said, give it a try for free for a month. I literally tried it out. YouTube TV is like direct TV, except it's over the internet, 49 bucks instead of 148 bucks. And I thought it was awesome. And then I had to persuade my wife <laughs> and I'm like, hun, trust me, we can get rid of all this ridiculous equipment. We'll save a thousand dollars a year. And, and a few days later, I, I was switched. But I think it was because they gave me a free trial because otherwise I was just going to keep paying that stupid, ridiculous 150 bucks a month because I was aware I knew how it worked and I had all the equipment and it was like a big barrier in my mind to have to get rid of all that stuff and cut the cord. Is that kind of what we're talking about? A similar kind of thing? That's exactly where we're going, right? So notice what they did. They lowered the upfront cost, right? There was still some time cost and some effort cost, right. but they lowered in this case the monetary cost to experience whether it was any good or not, right? Whether DirecTV was any good or not. They can say it's good, but no one's going to be better at convincing you than you. And so think for a moment about freemium, right? And this is probably something that many of your listeners are familiar with, the yeah. notion of, of freemium. So whether it's Dropbox or Pandora or the New York Times or Skype, many sort of software as a service type companies use some version of a freemium. What is freemium? There's an initial thing that's free, but they encourage you to upgrade to a premium version. So in the case of Dropbox, for example, they give you two gigabytes of storage for free. But eventually, if you want more storage, you have to pay to upgrade. What does that do? Well, sure, the marketer can say Dropbox is great. Sure, DirecTV can say DirecTV is great till they're blue in the face, but you're not going to trust them and you're going to react against the message. What Freemium does is it says, hey, don't trust us. You don't have to believe us. Check it out for yourself. Right? Uh, check out this free version of Dropbox. If you like it, right? if you hit the two gigabyte thing, if you need to upgrade to the better version, you've convinced yourself it's worth the money. Right? If you get to the point where you're storing all your files in Dropbox and you hit two gigabytes, you're probably going to be willing to pay them a couple bucks a month to have more space because you know that you love it. Same thing with DirecTV. Right? If you know that you've been enjoying it, you're going to be much more willing to pay for it. For yeah, and it was version. YouTube TV just to be clear. Oh, that, sorry, YouTube TV. I apologize. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so I've seen the ads as well. Right? It says, hey, you know, check out YouTube TV. I was like, ah, oh, not so much. Yeah. Right? And so when we think about using freemium, it's not just freemium in general works. We have to think about what do we give away, right? Because if we give away too much, people never upgrade to the, the premium version, mm -hmm. right? If we said, hey, have YouTube TV for the next 10 years, you would never get to the point you needed to upgrade, right? If New York Times said, hey, 50 articles a month for free, no one would ever pay for the premium version. At the same time, we don't give people enough of an experience 
it's not going to be enough to get them to be willing to pay, right? So if, if uh, YouTube TV says, hey, uh, for the next two minutes, you can check out YouTube TV. Okay, that's not going to be enough of an experience <laughs> right. for me to figure yeah, out. Yeah, they gave good. me 30 days, but it only took me two, you know? <laughs> yeah, but so it's really important to figure out what do we give away for free, right? And how do we make sure it's not so much that people don't want to upgrade to the premium version? I think a good way to think about it is, is yes, at the front end, we lower the barrier to trial. We make it easier for people to experience something. But at the same time, they have to see that there's something better on the other side. Right. Otherwise, they stay in the free state forever. So in the case of YouTube TV, it's a 30-day free trial. If 30 days run out, you don't get to try it anymore. I might suggest an even better version is give you access to some features of YouTube TV, but not all the features, right. and make you realize that you want the version with all the features. Yeah. Right. So LinkedIn has sort of failed at this. Most of us don't even know what the paid features are, but it's almost like you walk by a party that's happening, for example, at a hotel, and they say, hey, do you want to come into this party? And you're like, well, I don't know, but if you can hear it, and it sounds really fun, and it it sounds really good. You can see over the hedge and see what's on the other side. You'll be more willing to pay to check it out. And so what good freemium does is it gives you a sense of what's being offered, but not too much of a sense. And I think what's most interesting about what I would say about freemium, though, is we tend to go, okay, this is really cool, but, right? And, and you may be thinking about the but at the moment as well. Like this works for some things, but not everything. Right. So, yes, it works for YouTube TV because it's online and it's easy to give away 30 days for free. But, you know, if I sell a physical product, how do I do this? If I'm a doctor, how do I do this? If I'm a hospital system, how do I do this? If I sell something physical or real or a service, how do I do I it? I think I know the answer. It's called a, a refund, right? <laughs> but but some of those things are right. Conceptually, they're the same as freemium. Right. What we either do is we lower the upfront cost or we lower the back-end cost. We make it reversible. Think about a test drive, for example, in a car. A test drive isn't freemium. Right? There's no free version or premium version. A test drive, what it does, it allows people to experience the offering just like YouTube TV did. Right? It doesn't make it any cheaper once you buy it, but it makes it easier to experience the offering before you buy it. Think about renting. It does the same thing. Right? Renting equipment lets people experience it before they've committed to buying it. A 30-day free trial does the same thing. As you alluded to, same on the back end making it reversible, return policies, money back guarantees. Uh, hey, you know, lawyers say we only get paid if you win. All these things do is they make people feel more comfortable at taking the plunge because they know worst case if it doesn't work, they can turn around and give it back, right? This has actually uh, happened to me a number of years ago where I was thinking about adopting a dog. I wasn't sure. I love dogs. I would always go to the animal shelter and check out dogs, but I wasn't sure I was home enough and I could actually take a dog. And one day I was there and I was leaving and they said, oh, you seem like you love this dog. I said, yes, I do. Uh, I'd love to, you know, take it, but I, I can't. I'm not sure I could give it a home. And they said, oh, well, we have a two-week trial policy. And now that dog is named Zoe and has lived at our house for eight years and we love her and she's a wonderful pet, but I never would have gotten her without that two-week trial policy because it made me feel more comfortable that if I didn't work out, it was reversible, that heaven forbid it didn't work out, that I wasn't a good home, I could bring her back. And so that's the exact idea. At the front end, lowering the barrier, at the back end, making it reverse. It's my guess that the cost of the returns is more than paid for by the increase in the sales that will come as a result of this. Am I am I close to accurate? Oh, on this? You, you're a you're a sharp guy. Yes. Yeah. So uh, the book talks a lot about research in this space. We think returns are a cost center. We think we should make uh, you know strict returns, but lots of research shows that more lenient return policies are actually better. Um, they're better for two reasons. One, yes, people do return. They buy more things. Yes, they return more of them, but they also keep more of them as as well, and they share more word of mouth. Right. So Zappos, for example, you know, Zappos wants you to buy 10 pair of shoes. Sure, you return eight of them, but you keep a second pair where you wouldn't have necessarily uh, if it wasn't a free return policy because you wouldn't have bought as many in the first place. And you go back to Zappos next time you want shoes, right? Exactly. 
And Costco, I don't know if you have Costco out where you are, but they have an unlimited return policy at Costco, which is like Sam's Club. And when you buy something there, it's kind of like you, you might even be able to get it cheaper on Amazon, but people buy it at Costco because they know that they can return it. And that's kind of a fascinating thing that I think yeah. a lot of people should think through, you know? And I mean, that's really when that works. It's about understanding that barrier, right? Why isn't someone buying something? Because they're not sure if it's going to be any good. Well, how can I make it easier for them to feel comfortable testing it out so they see if it's any good? And if it doesn't work for them, fine, they bring it back. But more people are going to check it out and more people are going to end up keeping it. Do you think that also to help kind of hack away at uncertainty beyond switching costs and returning capabilities that we also need to go a little extra further in informing consumers, especially online. So is information, free information dissemination, like, you know, I see so many websites where there's almost nothing about the product and I see some where they have videos like Zappos is a great example. They'll put a sunglasses on a model and they'll spin them 360, you know, (laughs) just so you can see exactly how it's going to look. I mean, I would imagine that the availability of information will also help reduce uncertainty. No? Yes? Yes. It can. I think we need to be careful, right? There's a difference between us providing that information and someone getting that experience for themselves. And so I agree with you in general that information can be good. I think what we have to be careful of is when it comes from us as marketers, people are going to be less likely to trust it. Whereas it comes from their own personal experience, right? Acura can say we make amazing cars on their website. They can detail all the information. But I want to be able to sit in that Acura and myself to see if I like it, to see if it's a good fit with me. And so I think information can reduce uncertainty. Product reviews can reduce uncertainty. But the more unbiased that information is, the more unbiased that perspective it is, the bigger an impact it's going to have. So what I hear you saying is getting authentic customer reviews is super important. Right. I would say word of mouth is the second best thing, right? The best thing is personal experience. Nothing's better than personal experience, right? You know if it works for you. The next best thing is your friend's experience. The next, next best thing is the marketer or company saying it's good. Excellent. Awesome. Uh, Jonah, where can we get your book? And if people are interested in working with you, because uh, I know you do speaking and workshops and such, uh, where would they reach out to you? Oh, thanks. Yeah. So the book is available wherever books are sold. So uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, it's just called The Catalyst. Uh, so it should be available wherever books are sold. Uh, you can find me at Jonah, J-O-N-A-H, Berger, B-E-R-G-E-R.com. I'm also on LinkedIn uh, and on Twitter at, at J1 Burger. Jonah, thanks so much for entertaining all my crazy little questions and uh, you know, talking about something that I think people are going to find absolutely fascinating. Thank you again. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Hey, well, I hope you found a lot of value in today's podcast episode. If you missed anything, we took all the notes, socialmediaexaminer.com slash 396. And also, if you are interested in watching those videos that you heard at the beginning of this episode, youtube.com slash socialmediaexaminer. Hit subscribe. Go check out the playlist that's got my name and mugshot on there. And there's a whole bunch of videos for you there. Again, youtube.com slash socialmediaexaminer. Last reminder, if you're new to this podcast, hit that subscribe button. This brings us to the end of yet another episode of the Social Media Marketing Podcast. I'm your fast-talking host, Michael Stelzner. I'll be back with you next week. I hope you make the absolute best out of your day. And may social media continue to change your world. The Social Media Marketing Podcast is a production of Social Media Examiner. Hey, just a quick reminder, join the Social Media Marketing Society today and level up your marketing for your company or your clients. Visit smmarketingsociety.com to find out more.